This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Coco. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief at Voice of San Diego, and I'm joined as always by managing editor Andrew Keats. Scott, what's up, pal? And fellow managing editor Andrea Lopez Villafania. What's up, Lopez? Hey, how's it going? Lots going on. Great week. Coming up on the show this week, the race for sheriff has gotten more interesting. We thought for the first time in a long time that San Diego was definitely not going to elect a Republican sheriff. Because no Republican was running, but that is no longer true. And became true, became untrue, without a single person declaring to enter the race. Right. We'll explain <laughs> how that happened. Look at that teaser. Mm-hmm. Good job. Yeah. They're on their edge of the seats now. Also, one of the most interesting races in this year's election region-wide will be the Chula Vista mayoral race. And two newcomers are raising lots of money there. We'll talk about that. The city of San Diego won a major legal victory last week that could have ramifications for the entire state, but the city attorney of San Diego, who won that big victory, has asked that it not have ramifications for the entire state. We'll explain what that means as well. Look at these. They're just teased. They're so teased. This is AM radio. (laughs) They cannot handle it. Hold on. We have no commercial breaks for them to, to, that we want to hang on to them for, but, you know, it's good teases nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, hang in there. You'll get to all this good stuff. And finally, free COVID testing sites cropped up at trolley stations just when they were needed most as Omicron surged, but they did not deliver, at least for a lot of people. Our new intern, Jacob McWinney, who dug into what happened. We're going to talk to him about that and introduce you to him. Seems like an okay guy. That's all coming up. Stay with us. So sometimes this passes me by but this week it did not february 9th was the 17th anniversary of the launch of voice of san diego 17th 17 years ago that happened Mm -hmm. wow still not a voter if i had had a kid that day (laughs) he'd be 17 that's wild wow voices in aquarius Right. <laughs> there you go. I, I look take... at Andy because he hates horoscopes. I don't. I don't hate him. I just don't know anything about him. I got to take your word for whether we are in Aquarius or not. She's independent, <laughs> free flowing. Yeah. Uh, this week, are as if to reward us uh, with a little birthday present, we got a dope award. The First Amendment Coalition gave us the Free Speech and Open Government Award, plus a thousand bucks. Everybody's. That's nice. Going to get a little bonus this week. Mm-hmm. I'm kidding. You're not getting anything. You got to still pay the bill. Sorry to say, this is legal tender. But it was in uh, it was in regard to our work on the COVID um, first year deaths project, right? Mm-hmm. So this was this was a big long thing. We've talked about it a lot, but let's go ahead and pat ourselves on the back again. At least the team that worked on this. So we asked for death 
certificates for the first year of COVID, uh, and the county refused us, and we fought for it. So that was at first. Uh, it was Jared Whitlock who first looked into that for us. He's a freelancer, and then our attorney got involved. Felix Tinkov shook shook loose those death records, and then for many, 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 many weeks. Our various reporters and intern, interns and, and collaborators had to go to Santee to look at death certificates and write down the information, right? Nothing mm-hmm. that you said there sounds fun. <laughs> no, nothing. It, the county did not make it easy for us to access what became unambiguously clearly public records, right? Yeah, I mean, I think if you like, if you were to just read the stories, it would, you know, what we what we did with the records once we had compiled them, put them into a database and started running analysis on that database. It would be a bit odd to think that anyone ever contended that the information contained in those stories wasn't public record. Yeah. And yeah. they it's almost like they didn't. Remember they, their argument was like, well, you can have access to death certificates if you have just one that you want to look at. It was like the general, like getting them all that was the problem, yeah. right? Yeah. If you want to very, very narrowly focus on one individual's death, you may look. What, what it's would like we the, di- the difference between anecdote and data? Give us a. Like, we don't want you doing anything responsible, like looking at the entire picture at once to make sure that you can say something conclusively. That's give, what we don't want. Give us the bullets of what we wouldn't know had we not gotten those records. I mean, the one that stands out to me is that half of the people who died in this county were immigrants. Half the people in the first year before the vaccines before the, were prior out. Prior to the vaccine, yeah. Who died from COVID-19 were immigrants to the to this country. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so that's what we had to fight for. That's the information we got out. You can check out the work that we did on that project at VOSD.org slash COVID. That's VOSD.org slash COVID. So last year for PolitiFest, we didn't have a very robust. PolitiFest had four or five main discussions. They were good about criminal justice. And one of those was a debate between the candidates for sheriff. And during that debate, I wanted to make sure I clarified with each candidate like where they were on the sort of political party spectrum, right? Like what a lot of them, all of them wanted to say some version of it's a, it's not a political office or whatever, but... To, if you're running in a campaign, I'm sorry, that's politics. That's the literal definition of politics is to run for office and have those contests. And you're part of that. I'm sure they issue all endorsements. Yes. Of, of donations. Anybody, donations, any any sort of financial support from any sort of political party. That would be ugly. Yeah. I don't want any part of that. Well, they don't actually. So one of the, so the first candidate, Dave Myers, he left the Republican Party Many years ago, ran for sheriff as a Democrat in 2018. He lost that against Republican Bill Gore. Bill Gore is now leaving his undersheriff, his top deputy, Kelly Martinez. She is now running for that seat. She left the Democratic or the Republican Party last year, right? Mm -hmm. And became a, a Democrat because she didn't like what the president at the time was doing right the oh, i guess it's not last year now at this point it's, oh yeah it's more than it a was, year it ago. was in late 2020 right so which brings up the question like what about the few years before yeah. 2020 so, when trump was around 2016 yeah the 2017 regardless 2018 so 2019 that was her take and so then we turn to john hemmerling so john hemmerling he runs the criminal division for the San Diego City Attorney's Office. The San Diego City Attorney's Office uh, does investigations and prosecutions for misdemeanors within the city of San Diego. So the DA does misdemeanors and felonies for the whole county, except for within the boundaries of the city of San Diego where the city attorney's office prosecutes misdemeanors. misdemeanors. And Hemmerling is in charge of that. So we asked him, about his own party affiliation. John, I actually don't know your party affiliation. Do you um, have a, a party preference? I am um, no party preference. Um, I um, changed my registration a couple of years ago. That decision is personal to me as well. And 
And like Kelly said, I believe the sheriff should be apolitical and nonpartisan and perform unbiased law, law enforcement in the county. Well, not so much. Somewhere between last November and a week ago, that changed. That perspective changed. So he is now a Republican. And uh, I asked him last weekend, you know, what's up with that? And he's like, well, I decided to register as a Republican. And he went for the Republican Party endorsement and he got it and he trumpeted it. This week, they said uh, the Paula Witzel, the chairwoman of the local Republican Party, still have not had the chance, by the way, to talk with Paula about anything, hopefully soon. Whether as a combat Marine, a tough street cop, a chief criminal prosecutor, Republican John Hemmerling will be a tough law and order sheriff that voters can trust and take pride in, said Paula Witzel, the chairwoman of the Republican Party. So that means there's a Republican Lopez running for sheriff. Yeah. There's no longer no Republican running for sheriff. Which would have been interesting. Yes. Right? Or not? You think it's more interesting now? I think it makes the race more interesting. It certainly makes it. Well, for one, we don't really like have a sense of how these things work here. So much in local politics has changed the sort of mm-hmm. partisan ground that we had presumed that we stood on has, has shifted quite a bit. But still, no countywide office has been won by a Democrat. Right. So the assessor right now is a Republican. The, the DA was a Republican, left the Republican Party, became no party preference. But has only ever won an election as a Republican. Mm-hmm. This will be the first one. Actually, she's not being challenged, so she will win as a non-independent. As an independent. Yeah. So then that leaves the sheriff. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the treasurer tax collector. And the treasurer tax collector. Also Republican. Right. <laughs> Everybody's thinking about the treasurer tax collector. <laughs> I was annoyed that you had forgot him. And then there's McAllister. The, don't forget what Scott Lewis just did. Yeah, Dan McAllister. You give me a call. We'll talk, work it out with some conflict resolution skills I've got. Yeah. So so now I think that really helps because, look, this is going to be a, a primary in June. Republicans, there are still Republicans here. They might not be represented in local politics, at least on the city level that they used to be, mm-hmm. but they still turn out. And if the Republican Party sends out a lot of mailers and says this is the tough on crime guy or whatever, that could actually help. So if you have two Democrats running, splitting that side of things, as there were a lot of endorsements for Kelly Martinez and there are a lot of endorsements, including the Democratic Party for Dave Myers, then those two could split that side. And it's not inconceivable that Hemmerling could make it to the final. Exactly. And then what happens when it's... Uh Old-fashioned Democrat versus Republican in November? I don't know. Region-wide? Four four years ago, we would have said we basically we have a good sense of how that race sorts itself out. The way things have changed, maybe that's not the the case anymore, but we still haven't seen – we haven't seen it actually change yet. So until it does, how how confident can you be in how different things are? That's the key. We have not seen – a countywide major race between two, a Democrat and a Republican in this sort of new Democratic sort of dominant situation, right? Right. So that's something to keep an eye on. I think, obviously, Dave Myers has really aligned himself with the criminal justice reform advocates. Kelly Martinez has aligned herself with uh, the more establishment Democrats, the Todd Glories, the Nathan Fletchers, those folks. Uh, and then there's now Hemmerling, who's aligned himself with the Republicans. We'll see how it turns out. All right, before we go on any further, there is breaking news. Lopez, we have... <laughs> I looked at him. I was like, what? <gasps> what happened? <laughs> we have... Uh, some information on a story you've been following for yeah. a, a little while now about the street vending ordinance. So there's all these public spaces dominated by street vendors, a lot of concern about them, but also a class of entrepreneurs who, if we care about business and entrepreneurship, we kind of want to support. So that balance is tough to strike. There was, were you surprised that Campbell's office, so Jen Campbell's office, former council president, now just councilwoman, Jen Campbell, they produced a draft ordinance that's now kind of moving its way pretty fast through city council. What are the highlights? Were you surprised to see it come from her? Um, I mean, I wasn't surprised to see it come from her. She was working on it originally and um, 
you know, obviously she represents a lot of the beach communities that have been super outspoken about this issue. I mean, anyone who goes to Ocean Beach can, you know, see the vendors that are out there and have kind of taken over that public space. Um, So it made sense that it came from her office and her office had been working on it for a long time. So, I mean, that made a lot of sense. But I mean, I I thought it was interesting. Um, I spoke with some of the vendor advocates who've been waiting for this for a while because just like residents and merchants want to have some clarity and, and rules in place for these street vendors, like the vendors themselves want to have some clarity on what they can do. You know, no one wants to operate like what my guess is not a lot of people want to operate illegally and risk, you know, getting like some kind of fine or getting their um, little carts removed. So there are areas in San Diego that are just really heavy yeah. for these vendors. So Balboa Park is just dominated right now yeah. by these street vendors. Uh, Ocean Beach near the mm-hmm. piers dominated in some of those park areas. Gas lamp. Gas lamp. So I Tierra think Santa. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just loaded. Just like, Tierra Santa. You get to the bottom of those some of those cul-de-sacs. Yeah. And it's just the wild. eucalyptus it's and, just the, wild and the street there. vendors. Yeah, that's heavy there. So the 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 main thrust, if I there's kind of two main parts of this, right? Mm-hmm. The main thrust is A, that those areas are gonna get like a seasonal rhythm like you can be there in the winter but not in the summer yeah some area so the the vendor advocates i spoke with said you know that they were really happy about two main things in this proposed ordinance one that it would establish entrepreneur zones which isn't really clear how like that will come about just says like the city manager will select zones where people can vend um but it's not really clear like how long or what times whatever but they were happy that these like zones were being selected or could be selected in the future. And second, that um, any kind of enforcement, instead of going to SDPD, would go to the city's code enforcement department. So then you kind of have like this, you're taking away kind of that negative stigma of like criminalizing street vending. Right. Um, but yeah, so they, they, they selected certain streets where there would be no vending allowed based on public safety. Mm-hmm. Um, that includes areas in like downtown and Balboa um, in the beach areas to you know regain that public space. And then there's other areas also in Balboa Park and in the beach areas where you're not allowed to vend during the summer months, but everything else is open. So, I mean, people yesterday were pretty upset about that because they were like, well, the summertime is when you want to be out there, you know, selling whatever you have to sell. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they were like on both sides, people were really upset. And I think the council members saw it as like a compromise. Yeah, Yeah, that was their comment, right? Like, we're all unhappy with this. The vendors are unhappy with Mm -hmm. this. The business owners, the public advocates for, like, the parks and stuff, they're unhappy. So that means it might be a good deal. I mean, the the idea of, like, an entrepreneur zone cracks me up. It's like whenever, like, universities have some sort of issue with protests or whatever, so they establish, like, a free speech zone. Yeah. It's like... (laughs) sort of undermining the whole concept if you're we're all putting together, a geographical yeah. limitation on it. But <laughs> all right. <laughs> uh, that means everywhere else is not. Is not. Like, yeah, this, these are the areas where we don't care about entrepreneurship. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I mean, the so the state law that was passed that mm-hmm. that has led to the necessity to change these mm-hmm. things sort of said, you are only allowed to regulate these for the purposes of health and safety Mm -hmm. and public access. Mm -hmm. You can't uh, allow these uh, like sidewalks and rights of way to be totally over overrun. Those are the the standards that are okay to base your regulations around. And explicitly what is not okay is just protecting uh, already established businesses. Right. You can't use this to cut down on competition. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. But it seems like what you what the hearing sort yeah. of dispenses with that pretense entirely. Yeah, it's like obviously this is part of our opposition here is because these people represent competition. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, there's concerns like you can't have certain things on the sidewalk because there's not enough space for someone with a wheelchair, right? Like that makes complete sense. Yeah. But a lot of people calling in just kept bringing up, you know, th- these vendors are competition to tax-paying businesses, and it was like, well. Yeah, there's competition. When you have a business, you're going to have competition. Um, you know, and, and some Except people... Except in the communist zone. It, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's just for the entrepreneur zone. Yeah. yeah. Let's call them competition zones. So okay. it was interesting. Hand-to-hand combat or, like, you know, multiple people selling <laughs> yeah. corn. <laughs> that, oh, damn. 
so yeah. good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was it was interesting, and I'm curious to see why certain areas were selected. So I'll keep looking into that. Yes, it's not law yet. Uh, there will be certainly a lot of heated discussions about it still. So Amar Kampanajar did not get the Democratic Party endorsement for his run for mayor of Chula Vista. Now, you might know him as the guy who ran a couple times in East County for the most conservative at that time district in California. Uh, He gave it a good run a couple times, but did not make it. And now he set his sights on the mayor's race in Chula Vista. And so far, he's raised the most money, although he doesn't have the most money on hand when you take out how much debt and such all the candidates have. But there, there is, we just wanted to make sure you are paying attention if you care about local politics to probably the most interesting Chula Vista race I have seen in the last 15, 16 years in San Diego. So uh, there is Amar Campanajar running, uh, Zanita Encarnacion, she is running as well, she is a she's the chief of staff of uh, the president of Southwestern College. Uh, Jill Galvez is running. She's a city councilwoman. John McCann, a city councilman, is running, and Rudy Ramirez, former city councilman, is running as well. So there's a lot of uh, energy and interest in this race down there. Uh, I had somebody tell me that everybody is talking about the Chula Vista city council race, which might be a little bit of an exaggeration. My my wife and kids aren't, but. <laughs> <laughs> like just bring it up there to somebody are, uh, in front of you in line like you would like a baseball game about the night yeah <laughs> yeah be awesome uh so but that the i think those totals are really getting some people surprised so uh zanita and amar have a lot of uh, money and a lot of support she's gotten something like 500 donations now only about 38 percent of them are from people in chula vista but that's higher than Amar Kampanajar and a little bit lower percentage than Jill Galvez. McCann's loaned himself a lot of money. A lot of different perspectives, though. Uh, and Galvez loaned herself some money as well, right? Yeah. And so there is a just a lot of energy around this race. And it's for a city in flux, right? So they've, they've had financial problems for many years. They had this uh, garbage strike and the resulting tension about that. There's always tension about growth and different debates going on so policing policing uh surveillance issues Mm -hmm. and so we're going to be watching this i think as closely as we can it's going to be a good race yeah i mean we 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 joke a little bit but i do think this will be one of the most significant races this cycle yeah my tentative uh, ranking is sheriff yeah the top and then probably chula vista probably chula vista marriage race after that city council san diego district two yeah, I mean, the city council districts are now m- much more interesting as like council representative districts. Like the 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 partisan balance right. is such a is such a signed, sealed, and delivered deal that like that used to be a frame that made them that added a layer of interest to them that is not there anymore. Right, right. So, Amar Kampanajar uh, counts the endorsement of a couple of unions and Shirley Weber, the Secretary of State. Uh, Zanita got the endorsement of the Democratic Party and um, and lots of other folks in Chula Vista. So I think it's going to be a good fight. And then there's, of course, the two city council members who will have name recognition and all kinds of stuff. So mm-hmm. lots to see there. So San Diego recently won a major legal case allowing a housing project to go forward in Bankers Hill. Mm-hmm. And it's a big one, but that's not why it matters. Andy, tell us why this project was such a big deal. The reason it generated headlines across the state of California was not because people are very interested in the future look and feel of the 6th and Olive area of Bankers Hill right next to Everybody's talking about it. (laughs) Yes. Uh, It was because this is uh, a precedent-setting case for the city, the state's density bonus law. So a density bonus law um, essentially says your city has decided on a zoning that allows however many homes per acre in a certain area. Um, this state law, if you opt into it by choosing to put a certain percent of homes reserved for low-income people in that project, that you get to 
build homes in excess of whatever the zoning allows. So in simple terms, let's say the city sets the zoning on an acre of land at 10 units and you agree to put make uh, 15% of those of the units in the house uh, in the project uh, of reserved for people with low incomes, then you might be able to go up to 20 total units. Uh, instead of 10. So you might be able to, to you know, I- increase by 50% or 100% the um, density on a, on a given property. And you additionally get to like waive certain additional uh, restrictions on the land. So, so in short, if the city requires that you keep a, a building this small, yeah. but you put a certain amount of affordable housing in there, you can build a building that's bigger despite the city's zoning. By state law. By and state s- law. By state law. And so that was what was essentially the case here. Uh, local opponents in Bankers Hill sued and said that the city of San Diego, the city council, when it approved that project, abused its discretion and that they abused their discretion because they have adopted a general plan and they had adopted a community plan that laid out all these uh, subjective general uh, goals and priorities and procedures and things that they want to happen and that this project, because it was so big, didn't make good on those goals and priorities Mm -hmm. and that therefore the city council didn't have the discretion to approve a project that was not consistent with those goals and objectives. Um, The city attorney's office. So they didn't sue on the idea that it was bigger than zoned. No, they, 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 they they accepted that that might not work. They sued on the fact that there's a, a specific line in their lawsuit that said the density bonus law is not a blank check that you still must demonstrate compliance with these like vague ideas, these, okay. these, these uh, qualitative ideas that are included in things like your general plan and your community plan. Uh, the city of San Diego defended itself by saying, no, 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 this project is consistent with those qualitative general plans and, and community plans. A judge ruled that the city of San Diego was right to apply that to approve that project, but it blew right past the city's argument, which was no, no, no. This is consistent with those qualitative principles, and they went right to you. Actually, had no discretion at all. The state it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The general plan and the community plan are immaterial. The density bonus dictates clearly that you that if they follow the rules of the density bonus, you're a rubber stamp. You must ap- approve it. And so that was the state. That was the 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 state's ruling, and that was that's a, a significant precedent that that these density bonus laws do in fact trump city approval to the point that the city doesn't really even have much discretion at all. And that matters for other cities, be- not just because the den- they knew about the density bonus law, mm-hmm. but now it says that you just got to stamp these projects. Assuming they follow the density bonus law. Right. Right. And so regardless of what other you know responsibilities you might tack onto developers of these projects, doesn't really matter in the end. This is the law. And so the judge wanted to say like, hear ye, hear ye. This is now the law, right? Yes. Yes. So they, they put out, and, and we, sh- we should add that the city of San Diego has on its own essentially been following the logic of the density bonus, the state's density bonus, in its own way. Mm -hmm. Its own city laws, they've passed a bunch of different things that essentially mimic that thinking and create ways for developers to bypass discretion. So they're acting like they're still in charge. (laughs) Well, but they go on top of the density bonus law. So like the city of San Diego is, is... the density bonus law is predicated on the idea that cities left to their own devices are going to find ways not to build projects. Mm-hmm. And we should take that uh, decision-making capacity away from them, assuming developers meet these standards. That's not really something that, in general, I would say that the state legislature like worries about the city of San Diego about, for the most part. It's like things that they worry about, like the city of Santa Monica about. Or Encinitas. Or, or Encinitas, or... Uh, you know, the city of Richmond in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. like smaller cities that have proven time and again that they mostly don't want to add new housing and that this was a way to 
to sort of cut them off at the knees. So this the significance of this ruling is those cities. Yeah. If this holds as a precedent. Yes. They they got they got nothing. They they're just going to have to rubber stamp these buildings. And so after this ruling came out, and the ruling indicated that they were going to uh, to publish this, which means to to establish it as as prevailing precedent across the state. Uh, City Attorney Mara Elliott, who argued the case successfully, um, joined a few other people, including the city of Encinitas and including the League of Cities, which is a, 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 a interest group that represents cities across the state that all asked the court, please don't publish this ruling as precedent. Now, the, the Mara Elliott's argument in her ruling was we didn't actually argue the merits of this ruling in court. Our argument was about whether we did or didn't comply with the general plan and community plan. And now you've gone way beyond that. So, like, please slow down a bit. Translated, this can be really controversial. And you're <laughs> going to attribute it to me. And I, I, I got nothing here. I did not do this. Well, and I think there is, like, the, the, the charitable reading is that it's one thing if you're the city's lawyer to try to win a case when the city is sued. Mm-hmm. That's your obligation. But you also, as the city's lawyer, like want to look out for their legal, their general legal positioning, mm-hmm. and you probably don't want to give up discretion. You probably want, yeah. as a general principle, to to keep your clients' discretion to the greatest extent pract- mm-hmm. practical, because. This city council has demonstrated that it would like to always approve housing projects mm-hmm. for the most part. But is that true? going to be true of a city council right. 10 or 20 or 15 years? And so, so you sort of have a, an obligation maybe, or you may see yourself as having a, a legal obligation to retain whatever discretion they previously had. And in, that, in this case, not want a ruling that permanently takes that discretion away to become precedent. And so that's certainly the League of Cities, their request that this not become president. That's definitely what they think. I mean, the League of Cities, if they have like a, a number one bullet point, it's going to be like, we want our cities to always have the discretion to do what they want to do right. and not have the state tell them what they have to do. It seems like we're finally seeing the clash of what was put in motion by some of these laws yeah. and what it actually meant would happen. Yes. So we've we've seen these constant laws for the last five years be passed that allow different things to be built and stuff like that. And now we're finally seeing projects that conform to them and that actually have significance and impact in these areas. Can you answer a question for me? I can try. How big would this project have been or would this project have even existed without this benefit, this density bonus? It's a little hard to say because there's some some squishy room in the uptown community plan. It's it's a twenty story building, so it's mm-hmm. a two hundred foot building, two hundred p- foot plus. Yeah, and the the uptown community plan says that at sixty feet, or sixty five feet, I think, but six stories basically, um, it it needs special consideration to demonstrate that this is consistent with all of the other stuff. So like, it's not. It's not a it's not a hard and fast height limit like you have on the coast. It's but it's like a height limit that elevates it to further discretion. So, um, and the unit I don't I don't know the exact unit count that they were able to get out of this, but but they got but they have about fifteen percent affordable housing uh, units on site, and it's a twenty story tall building. Yeah. So they also there there was an interesting thing here so this is it's saint paul's cathedral you know saint paul's yeah. cathedral in about banger so they're the property owners they own the whole area their their position is that they're setting themselves up financially forever by essentially developing all of the rest of the block besides where they have their church um and that this the developer they hired to do this proposed this very large thing and in the middle of the uh, project is a courtyard uh, the courtyard will be available to uh, people who live in the building, but it'll also be available to the church as outdoor space, you know, for say maybe they have a Sunday school or something like that. They'll be able to go to the courtyard. And one of the things that was argued in the lawsuit was, well, look, they don't actually need that much height. They could just get rid of that courtyard and put put all of squish all the units down in there. And so there's an interesting point where the judge says, like, no, 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 no you don't get to dictate design decisions. They want to have a courtyard. And the density bonus law says they're allowed to go higher. If they include low-income housing units, 
the end. Yeah. <laughs> His name's uh, Judge Holler. Yeah. So uh, it is fair to say they might not have built the, the affordable housing units in the building mm-hmm. as an inclusion because they could have uh, done something pay, separate. You could have paid a, a fee instead. Fee. Yeah. And that they got more units done because of this. Yes. Right? Yeah, that's correct. Fascinating. So last year, a private company set up COVID testing sites at trolley stations around the county. The goal was to make testing easy, fast, effective, free. But around the holidays, we needed a lot of testing. A lot of people went to these testing facilities and they were at you know trolley stations downtown and in other parts of the county. And they waited and they waited and they waited and they waited and they didn't get their results. Our intern, Jacob McWinney, went after this story, tracked some of those folks down and talked to the company responsible about what they had to say. Jacob joins us in the studio, the great Voice San Diego studio for the first time. Welcome to Voice San Diego. Already a great story out there. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me in this absolutely massive studio with pillars and and columns and hallways. It's beautiful. <laughs> thank you for recognizing how beautiful it is. Yes, yeah, uh, a real architect architectural achievement. Yes, thank you. I'm very proud. <laughs> so, uh, what did you actually find? You you were able to talk to the company. You were able to talk to people who didn't get their results. Did they have a good excuse about why they weren't delivering results? I mean, look, let's just drive this home. This was during the Omicron su- surge. If you got sick. Nobody wanted to be around. You couldn't go to school. These testing sites proved to be valuable on their face, but if they don't deliver results, what's the point? Yeah, well, good excuse. I'll leave that judgment to the listeners. They'd certainly had an excuse, um, and that was they laid it largely on their lab partner, this this company called Sterling Pathology National Laboratories. Um, and their argument essentially was that from one day to the next, uh, the lab's ability to process tests just became overrun. And that the lab had sort of given them assurances that that they were on top of it, trying to to figure out ways to to um, you know increase or, or decrease the turnaround time for these tests. Um, and they said, you know, they had eight months of of partnership with this lab that they felt was positive, and so they trusted them for to a, for a certain amount of time. But eventually, it became clear to them that the lab just was not able to process these tests, and so they started looking for other other partners to to make that happen. Um, but yeah, that was essentially their argument. That mixed with the fact that um, they say that uh, uh, their the, the number of patients they saw increased by 500% during the Omicron surge. Mm-hmm. Um, they specifically said they went from testing around 9,000 people in all of December to 8,000 within a four-day per- four period from, from January 3 to 7. So it's definitely, it, it was an increase and then you know, they say they handed the ball off to the to the lab, and 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 the lab was the one who dropped it. Okay, a couple questions. Let's lay the groundwork. What what company are we talking about here? What's the company? Uh, well, uh, it's a couple actually. Okay. Um, it's uh, the company that actually set up the test sites is is called Test SD. Mm-hmm. The company that started Test SD is called Broadwell. So Broadwell has has largely been in the news lately because of its connections to this other company called Borrego Community Health Foundation, um, which recently has been under investigation by uh, officials due to Medicare fraud, essentially, uh, or questionable Medicare billing practices, let's say. Um, and it seems as if uh, Broadwell was was founded in 2016 by El Cajon Mayor Bill Wells after being approached by the then-CEO of Borrego, um, to potentially work as a staff psychologist at Borrego. Um, and Bill Wells passed on the job, but decided that he did want to found a company that would go on to provide uh, behavioral health experts to various Borrego um, uh, clinics. And apparently COVID-19 testing at trolley sites. And apparently COVID-19 testing. Yeah, he's, he's a very, the company is a very ambitious company. Okay. It is worth noting though that, that Bill Wells um, uh, made it very clear to me in a terse text that uh, that he does not have anything to do with with uh, test SD or the COVID nineteen testing aspect of, of so he of doesn't have an equity share in that company. Oh, oh he does have an equity share oh, okay. in Broadwell, so but he has he, nothing he, to do in the actual management ex- of it. He yes, just exactly. makes the money. <laughs> there you go. Okay, yeah. got it. All right. So it's like what you tell people when when we get sued for for libel. Uh, like I, that is. Ex- 
exclusively the work of that one reporter. Yeah. <laughs> I had nothing to do with yeah. that. Yeah. I have no responsibility over this mm-hmm. matter. That was that asshole. Just to be clear, we do indemnify all our reporters. Yeah, no, just um, um, just, I, I say this to to make light of the, yes. the the claim that a subsidiary organization of the one that you founded is could ever be something to say that you have nothing to do with. No, it's, it's good stuff. Just one last thing in this, and then I'll hand it off to my August partners. But the this is public land. The trolleys are owned by the Metropolitan Transit System. This is public land. So, uh, and they also it's free, but obviously free things have to be paid for. And it sounds like this is being paid for by Medicare, is it? Yeah, essentially. So, you know, one of the things that was really interesting early on is that when we got the contracts from the from MTS, um, it showed that Broadwell was actually paying to be to operate on these on these locations between a thousand and two thousand um, dollars. And in speaking with with officials at at Broadwell and Test SD. Um, you know, they, they made it very clear that they were they were doing this for the love, you know, it was for the community. Mm-hmm. Um, but also they were using information gathered at test sites to submit reimbursement requests to Medicare for individuals who are insured. But they were using this information um, to submit refund reimbursement requests to to Medicare or HRSA, which is the U.S. Health and Resource Admi- Administration for individuals who were uninsured. Um, and each of those organizations provide a um, reimbursement of $75 per test with an additional $25 um, if they're returned within 48 hours. So while they may have been doing it for the love, according to them, the tests performed just between January 3 and 7 um, have a potential reimbursement amount of $600,000 and $800,000 if they had returned them within the 48 hours, which clearly they did not do. Okay, so that was an important question. So mm-hmm. if they don't turn the test results in in 48 hours, they do not get the reimbursement. I don't think that's true. Um, according to Broadwell CEO, they are submitting all tests that have been resulted, which essentially means that uh, they were able to successfully process the test and get a result from it. Um, they are submitting all tests that have been resulted for reimbursement. So you get a $25 bonus yeah, if you turn exactly. it in two days. Mm-hmm. Oh, but you get $75 if you just ever do it. Mm-hmm. So there, so it's not out of the realm of possibility, and we need to clarify whether it's true or not, but some of these tests that people have not gotten results back, they could eventually get results back, and those could be submitted for reimbursement? That's what it seems like. Um, we're you know, trying to figure that out. Yeah, we're trying to figure that out, exactly. Fascinating. Yeah. So, I mean, look, like the Omicron wave seems to have caught everybody pretty flat-footed. And so they, they stood up this sort of public-facing free testing site that would be easily accessible. People were stoked. They're like tweeting like, hey, man, if you need to test, there's there's room here. There's, yeah. there, it's easy to get to. Good for MTS, uh, you know, sort of going outside of the typical lane of their public service realm that, you know, that's all good stuff in some ways. But like, it's not a, it's not like, ah, well, we tried and it turns out we got overrun. Like if you think you got tested, and then you go into your quarantine and wait for your results and your results don't come back. And in the meantime, you haven't gotten an alternative test. I got this test. <laughs> it like you you are substantially impacting people's ability to live freely and get a, get a, a, a quick answer so they can go back to work, so they can go back to school, <laughs> so they can go see a friend who might be immunocompromised or older. Like it's not a, it's not a small thing to, to tell somebody, okay, you've been tested. We'll get this back to you as soon as possible. And then simply never provide a test to them. Yeah. What did people you spoke with say? How did they feel about? Well, they, they definitely felt pretty gypped. Um, I spoke to one individual who, like you said, um, uh, heard from from friends that that he'd hung out with that um, they'd tested positive, and so he, as you know, a, a safety measure, went and got tested, um, but just didn't hear back and um, ended up ever <laughs> ever <laughs> yeah and ended up having to to isolate for um, for longer than he would have until a friend was able to locate one of the the incredibly rare at the time um, at home tests that that you know again just were not at stores at the time. Um, I've I've also recently spoken to somebody who who um, who did not get a test back for over a week and a half, um, and by the time he did, he had already recovered from COVID. Um, so it, it raises really interesting issues about if there was just more damage done by these delays. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, what do you do? What what good is a week old, t- week and a half old test in in Even like after a, like three a surge days. that yeah. lasts one month? Yeah, you know. And now again, remember that time. We're we have a stack of at home tests now. Everybody like it. It was they're mm-hmm. now not hard to get. That two weeks was a mess. I got COVID. We we couldn't get the kids back to school until they proved that they were negative. There was uh, people want to test so bad. It's it's it seems like it does really a lot of violence to your consciousness to like to like not deliver on that at that moment regardless of how much trouble you had. I'm I'm curious about one thing. So I was sick around that time too and I was kind of driving around trying to find somewhere where I could get tested to see if I could come back to the office because I hate working from home. <laughs> and the you know there was like weird pop-up tents or weird drive-throughs that I just wasn't sure if they were real or mm-hmm. scam testing sites, but to me being at an MTS stop or yeah, trolley stop gives you some sort of you know like it tells people this is real right this this is a real agency that's supporting this company and this is a real company mm-hmm. it implies um, a vet yeah yeah so i'm curious like what did mts have to say about this um you know they basically said that there was yet another private entity called Bryce House that does all of the vetting for the contracts for you know things that are setting up operations on their on their um, uh, locations and they sent the vetting to them and and they say that they went over financials and went over uh, you know just details about the company and it was approved. <laughs> a lot of names of companies. Yeah, lots, yeah. <laughs> lots yeah, of names. It, it was in me. Sure. At, at some point, like take ownership and just say, it's, "I'm sorry. We we messed up your life. We messed up your holidays, and mm-hmm. we couldn't deliver. And we're sorry." Yeah. It's the same flaw in logic of of Bill Wells' statement that he doesn't have anything to do with it. It's like MTS is like, "No, well, you know, we contracted our services to Bryce House, and they do the betting." It's like, "Yeah, I know you contracted with Bryce House. You now own their decisions." That yeah. is like. It's, did he really text you? He did, yeah. Just like, like yeah. Hey, well, I, I, hey, you got to keep in mind, I'm, I'm just, I'm a silent thing. Yeah. yeah. So I, I gave him a call and, and you know, just asked if I could speak to him really briefly about Broadwell. And within like maybe 10, 15 minutes, he texted me back and said, hey, after we got off the phone, you know, I, I called CEO Roger Stellers, who is, is the CEO of not only Te- Broadwell, but TestSD as well. Um, and you know, he referred me to him. Same CEO. Yeah. Same CEO for, for, for the company. Um, and you know, there was also, you guys mentioned the, the sort of endorsement aspect of the MTS. There's a really interesting timeline aspect, which is in my conversations with test SD officials, they said they first started to experience delays from the lab, um, around December 28th. And a lot of people that I spoke to who had been tested at these sites were extremely frustrated because um, on January 3rd, um, Mark Olson, director of communications, I, I can't remember his full title, but something like that for MTS. Yeah, it's the head um, spokes at MTS. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, he, he went on KUSI to tout this partnership. Oh. And, and he said, you know, uh, that lines had increased slightly, but made no mention of, of any sort of delays in, in results. And in talking to, to uh, Olson, I, you know, asked him when the first he became aware of these results was. And he said that it was January 4th, the day after he went on KUSI which is a full seven days after Broadwell and, or Test It, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> or Bryce House. <laughs> or, or, yeah. First just, started to see delays. Can I, yeah. can I just also point out that these tests require you to have a very uncomfortable swab inserted, or is this the spit one? No, this was, this was swabs, yeah. Yeah, like that's, so to do that, and this implies that they knew or they had a good idea that it wouldn't deliver results in time, and yet they were still encouraging people to do it. That's like... And it's again, a, it's, it's a kind of a violation. Like it's a, it's, it feels invasive. That's exactly and, what somebody and, told me. Yeah. And again, like, yeah, so it's, it's not great, but also once you get that test, you don't go get tested yes. again. So yeah. if it takes you, tell you, people I got tested, I got tested. Gonna, I'll have yeah, the I'm results in a day. Like, yeah. uh, hopefully like, it's not 72 it? hours. I can just hear all these conversations, thousands of conversations yeah. in this community. Did you get it? I don't know. They haven't and, got back. <laughs> well, did you really get tested? Yeah, like, no, I did. Yeah. And when do you decide like, well, I guess that's not coming. I'll go get tested again. I, I don't know. Guess for yourself. When would you make that decision? Three days, four days? Well, yeah. you know, it's it and also. Then you, and then wherever else you get tested is another two days. It's like. You know, it's not, it's just not a small thing to do to somebody's life. <laughs> yeah. And it's worth noting that during this period, test SD was, was, um, telling individuals that they believe tests would be returned within three to five days, which already is a very long time. Yeah. Um, and that was something that, that I heard from somebody who got tested there as well. Uh, and, and it is worth 
you know, repeating that that it does seem like Sterling, uh, this laboratory that 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 Test SD and Broadwell partnered with, it does seem like they were the ones to drop the ball. I mean, you, I, I tried to get in contact with them to get it get a comment, and I was um, the the phone number that I was able to find forwarded to this very, very. Um, I'll call it interesting in voicemail that that essentially sounded like it was it was um, you know recorded by somebody who was really not having the best day of their lives um, <laughs> and you know they said uh, they they instructed callers to to give them all the information about where they were tested uh, when their name um, and said you know we are working twenty four seven in the laboratory to try and get your results thank you for your patience which made it very clear that this was not just an isolated thing with test SD and if you go in their their Google the reviews show the same oh, well I mean look I you know it's it's a perfectly good reporting point to focus on the, this seems to be where in the the chain of responsibility things fell apart but like that's the that's the lab that they chose to partner with. <laughs> yes, that's the, yeah, exactly. You know, if you, if it, when it becomes clear that it's not going to work, you can find other ways to increase capacity, like partnering with another lab. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, or the holidays are coming. Or <laughs> cut off more test sites and say, like, we can't serve this many people and tell Bryce House or tell MTS or tell whichever overlord that you can't make good on the promise. You, like, just continuing to collect nasal swabs <laughs> that won't be tested in six weeks is not is not a yeah. good solution. And, and you know that is eventually what they did. Yeah. Um, after a while of what they said again were were assurances by by Sterling that they were working on 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 the issue. They did eventually close down some test sites and they did eventually um, find a new lab to partner with. But uh, as of now, they've reopened all these test sites um, and. According to Mark Olson um, from MTS, they uh, will be allowed to continue to operate at these test sites as long as they can provide results in a timely fashion. Can't wait yeah. to see how much they make in reimbursements. <laughs> yeah, let's check that out. All right. Thank you, Jacob. Take yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in the Great Voice San Diego podcast studio in downtown San Diego on Thursday afternoon. If you haven't checked it out yet, we recently dropped a new episode of San Diego 101, our series that explains how the region works. And this one is about the three most common myths that we come across that people believe about homelessness. It's our most popular episode of the series so far. I, I, I dug it. I, I was... I was very interested in, in how this was going to work and how they did it. They talked to some amazing people, great experts, people with lived experience on the streets, people who are homeless, and it it really did um, provide some perspective. So I highly encourage it. That's in the feed now. You can see more at vosd.org slash 101 podcast. That's vosd.org slash 101 podcast. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego. Andrew Keats and Andrea Lopez Villafana are our managing editors. Adam Greenfield is our technician. And Nate John is our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.